Well, as you sit there and listen to uh, Nathan read and you read along with him, I, I wondered, are you getting tired of this passage yet? No. Yes, that's the right answer. There is still some nutrients to be able uh, to, to wring out of it, which, uh, which we're going to, to, to see today. And I think it's a very relevant, relevant topic. I, I, I chafe at the, the word relevance whenever you apply it to, to the Bible because people often misuse that word um, as if you make the Bible relevant. You don't make the Bible anything. It is relevant. It's the word of the living God, and it speaks uh, even today. But it's hard to, to listen to the news without hearing something about the topic we have in front of us this morning, the topic of, of tolerance. I mean, everywhere you turn, someone is calling for it, usually with a hefty dose of intolerance uh, right behind it, right? And if you don't immediately comply with, with their point of view, some serious name-calling follows, usually it's common in our day to today, bigot, racist, homophobe, or some other uh, thing Or on the other side, you know, a woke socialist snowflake with some kind of mind virus and all types of other uh, things hurled back and forth. Um, but that's gripped our, our every area of modern life. We have entire months of contrived celebrations. We have company boycotts, forced DEI training, and of course, it pervades all of, of, of politics. And if all that bickering wearies you, uh, I hate to, to break the news to you, you're, you're not going to find much relief this side of, of heaven. Permanent peace and harmony will never happen in the world or between worldlings. They're not capable of, uh, of doing that. People need new hearts. Um, and until they get them, just as Jesus said in Matthew 24, everything will continue as it has from the beginning, meaning from the fall with wars and rumors of wars. But, but what about Christians? We can't do anything about the world and, and the way that they interact. What they need is the gospel, and that is our task to take the gospel to them so God can transform their hearts, and then they might even uh, be, be putting on some of these, these Christ-like garments that, that we're looking at. But what, what about us? Are we supposed to be tolerant? And if so, in, in what way? I mean, surely we don't mean by that word, uh, word what the world does. And, and sadly, some churches have, have imbibed that and gotten wrapped up in that area uh, in, uh, of that, that, that error and emptied themselves of, of usefulness and, and power. But we can't do anything about the world until it's transformed. But what about people who are already transformed? I mean, does the Bible have anything to say about how we as Christians deal with our differences and dissimilarities or our preferences and partialities. And as you'll see this morning, indeed, it, it does. So if you're not there, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. There's a couple more messages in this passage, and it's helping us see what it looks like to walk in, in new life. You remember we're here by way of, of Romans 6, which, which told us about our union with Christ we're in union with Him, and, and because of that, we're not to yield our members to sin, but we're to yield ourselves to God as those alive from the, from the dead. And Colossians 3 is showing us how to do that through the process of biblical replacement, or what we call putting off and, 
and putting on. The, the attitudes and the actions of what you were before you came to know Jesus Christ must be mortified. They must be put off like a, like a dirty garment. And we must dress ourselves in new Christ-like virtues. That's, that's the part uh, of sanctification that, that, that you play. That you are to take the ability that God has now given you with the Spirit living in you, and you are to pursue these Christ-like virtues. Verses 12 through 14 begins with this reminder of our new position in Christ. Then a call to clothe yourself in these five virtues, followed by a separate call, which we'll look at today, to bear and, and forgive. And finally, a call to, to love, which, which holds everything in this, in this passage to, together. And, and last time we finished these five virtues, which we're to pursue, and today we're going to look at how we're to practice these graces with forbearance and, and forgiveness. You can think of those two words like, like, like oil and balm in, in the Christian life. One makes things run smoothly, and the other one heals uh, the wounds that are, that are created by, by sin between believers. We, we say these are four seams of a, of a believer's Christ-like garment. There's a reminder, reminder of our special position, a command to adorn ourselves with a specific pattern, a call to follow a selfless practice, and a, then a practice of a, of a perfecting bond. And, and if it's not obvious to you but by now, this passage is more blue-collar than the other uh, theological sections that we've come out of in, in Romans 6. So if you're itching for the deeper end of the pool, it's coming. I mean, we're going to be back in the other half of Romans 6 and in Romans 7, which is all about the law and how a believer relates to the law. But if you feel that, don't forget, it's the working class passages like this one in, in Colossians that actually build the Christian life. I mean, these passages need the doctrinal architects and engineers of, of Romans for, for the building plans, but, but it's these lunch pail passages of the put off and the put on that actually drive a Christian's rebar uh, down deep and, and provide stability. And the first seam that we see here is, uh, is a reminder of our, our special position. Look at verse 12. He says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and, and beloved. And Paul gives three motivations for who we are in, in Christ. We're, we're, we're chosen, we're holy, and we're, we're beloved. And then the second seam is a... Uh, in a believer's garment, is a command to adorn yourself with a, with a specific pattern. So as those who have been chosen of God, verse 12, holy and beloved, put on, there's the command, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and, and patience. And there were five virtues. A heart of compassion, that's, that, that's compassion that's moved, that sits on the seat of the heart, moved to action by the need of others. Kindness, which is a generous spirit, that oozes pleasantness, humility, or lowliness. It's a proper estimation of yourself in light of who God is. Gentleness, self-controlled and measured, and then patience, long-suffering toward, toward others. We're, we're to put on this special pattern, these special attitudes and actions. And that's also followed by a selfless, selfless practice toward, toward others, which is the the third garment here. Look if you would at verse 13, third seam, I should say. It says, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, 
Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Here's the third seam in a believer's garment. It's a, it's a call to follow a selfless practice. So realize your special position now that you're in Christ. Adorn yourself with this, with this specific pattern and then follow this selfless practice. So Paul now adds two interpersonal behaviors to that list of five virtues or, or five graces. And, and they are bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And they go together very naturally when you think about these two words, uh, like Texas and boots, or peanut butter and jelly, or pride and falling. And, and I want you to notice they're ING words, meaning they're, they're participles, they're, they're action-oriented. They're things that we do toward, toward others. And they're turning our focus toward the body of Christ. I mean, you can clearly see that by the object. You're, you're to be forbearing to one another, and you're to forgive each other. And so where the five virtues before were attitudes and actions that you put on individually, you have a heart of compassion, you exhibit kindness. Verse 13 turns the conversation toward relationships in the church. Interactions between believers. And Paul says you're to practice these habitual behaviors toward other Christians in, in your church family. Christians are not to be thin-skinned people who hold grudges. You're to forbear and you're to forgive. You're to be forbearing and you're to be forgiving. It's a, a behavior, a general disposition that, that you have as a, as a Christian. You're to show tolerance toward, toward partialities, your partialities, as they conflict with others. And you're to extend grace toward, toward offenses. That's how I would summarize the, these two words. Tolerance toward partialities and grace toward offenses. That's the best way to translate those two words. Uh, tolerance and graciousness. The first word, forbearance, means to tolerate something, which helps us understand Paul, Paul's intent. It, uh, intent. it means to endure or to bear up with the differences of others. Uh, to put up with things that you don't like about other people, things that are different from what you, you prefer. And, and by being specific with the one another term, Paul is talking about tolerance and grace toward other Christians, specifically in the life of the, of the church. Always remember that, that God applies the, the New Testament to an individual level, but when he's, when he's talking about the church, he's talking about a local congregation. Of course, you're, you're supposed to be this with, with all Christians in the world, but, 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 but that's, that's nebulous. The Bible applies it to the person that you're sitting next to on the pew, that you'll sit next to next week and the week after and the, and the week after. You think we, we, we need to be told to tolerate the differences that we have with, within the church? I mean, Christians don't nitpick one another, do we? I mean, of course not. And this passage reminds you that you should not be surprised or overly offended when, when that happens because God is not. I mean, He's grieved, but He's not surprised over differences in the sparks that sometimes fly. Always re remember the New Testament is written to churches to instruct them about what to do with sin, what to do with the difficulties that... That are there. So if God is not surprised by, by the differences and the, 
the, the issues that sometimes come from them. You shouldn't be either. What you and I should worry about is how to respond properly, which is why these two words are here in, in the Bible. They're part of, uh, of, of what we're to put on in, in sanctification. And the first petition that Paul makes clear here is an appeal for Christian tolerance. Christian tolerance in place of critical spirits personal judgments and evaluations, and just general pettiness. Joel James um, introduced this text by, by quoting uh, Alexander Strzok, who, who is a, a man who written a lot about the church. And um, he told a story in, in one of his books about how he went to a friend's farm who had chickens. He said, his friend said, as he walked around the farm, he noticed that most of the chickens were missing some feathers. Some even had bald spots uh, and sores where their feathers once were. And, and his friend asked the farmer the reason. And the farmer said, matter-of-factly, oh, chickens like to peck each other. And he said, that's a good analogy for some Christians. Christians like to peck each other. Peck about differences, a, a peck there about a personal judgment, and sometimes a spur or two from a, from a critical spirit. In churches that don't heed what Paul says here in, in this passage, they're full of members missing a lot of, of feathers. And if you've ever seen a bald chicken, it's not a pretty sight, is it? And you might be here today with some feathers in your mouth, and, and God wants to, wants to help file down your beak a little bit so he doesn't have to clip your wings. But if Paul is saying be tolerant with others in the church, I mean... The, the, the first question that you should be asking is, what are we to be tolerant about? I mean, we, we know he's not talking like the world, but, but, but what, what are we to tolerate and what are we not to tolerate? Of course, Paul's not talking about, about a worldly concept. In fact, Scripture commands us to be intolerant about a number of things. We're not to tolerate heresy or theological error. We're not to be open-minded about evil or, or deliberate or intentional sin or sin that hurts other people. In fact, we're called to be narrow-minded about serious things like, like the gospel. Jesus was. You know this passage well. No man, no one comes to the Father but through me. That's pretty narrow-minded, isn't it? Well, look at the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was, was as well was as well, Galatians 1, 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. It literally means to be damned. As we have said before I say uh, to you again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed, anathema. And Paul even goes on to acknowledge that this is not a position of popular opinion. What he says in verse 10, the next verse. He says, For now am I seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And so you, you, you may find yourself in opposition to others. And may I say that even stronger? You should find yourself in opposition to others related to the gospel and heresy. Paul says you're not to be a man-pleaser. He even told Timothy to reject false teachers openly. 
but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. And on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Believers are not to even entertain certain ideas or teachers. And so Christians are not to be stretchy with the truth or acceptors of, of error. But while we should not tolerate error, there are many other things that God commands us to tolerate. Commands us to apply a healthy dose of this, this heavenly oil. We, we are to be tolerant about the failures of others, the weaknesses of others, the immaturity of others that, that can be in a different place of sanctification that, than you are. And we are to be tolerant about the conscience of others. We're going to try to crank the screws down on somebody else's conscience, no matter how tight yours is. Tolerance, the tolerance that God is commanding here, is related to preferences and personal judgments, personal irritations, and secondary matters, secondary theological matters. You'd say, where should I apply this, this concept of tolerance? I think it falls into, into these, these areas. Christian tolerance is, is to control criticism created by, by these things. And personal preferences and personal judgments are the things that fall into Romans 14. Things that are to the matter of, of the conscience. Things that we, we call convictions. Forbearance doesn't mean that you don't have a position on those things. In fact, it means just the opposite. This word means that you will have a position on those things and many others. But when someone else has a different position than, than you in the church, that, that, that can create an annoyance. And you're to be tolerant toward them. Things like where you send your kids to school. Do they play sports or, 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 or not? What kind of music you think is preferable? Uh, certain types of dress. How you treat yourself or, or your family. Homeopathic, osteopathic, allopathic. By the way, you wear your hair, short, long, or maybe a splash of color, maybe even some blue or pink. Bible versions, or Bibles, period, in our day. Is it virtual or is it real? Paper or, you know, or my, or my phone. The list can be endless, right? I mean, I could have picked any number of other things on that, on that list because there's a never-ending catalog, catalog of decisions that believers have to make. But all of them fall into the same category of principles and preferences. And Christian tolerance is the aloe vera that soothes the burn created between believers whenever they're, they're different. Again, don't mishear me here. Uh, I, I'm not saying that these things shouldn't matter to you. On, on the contrary, you must make serious God-honoring decisions about, about every one of those things. The, the problem is when you do, we often want to make those decisions for others as well. And then it's easy to criticize whenever people don't make the same decision like, like us. And Paul says what's needed in those cases is Christian tolerance, or it makes for a very unpleasant church life. I mean, when, when you were a kid, did you ever go to the beach and your legs get chafed? The salt and the sand and the sun and the, the running and all of that rubbing together can create, can create quite a, an uncomfortable walk to and from the the beach house. Well, life in the church can be the same way. A group of people from different backgrounds with different ways of doing things all serving together. There's, there's bound to be some chafing. And Paul says the balm that soothes it is tolerance for, for one another. 
I mean, you're not going to sit out the beach over, over a little rubbing, and you shouldn't sit out church either. So put on some tolerance and, and serve. And it's quite possible that you might be here today suffering from, from rash in, in relationships this morning be, for, for this very reason. And forbearance is, is needed. It's also needed for personal irritations. So not just these preferences and personal judgments where we're, we work the angles of principles differently, but, but also personal irritations. I mean, Christian tolerance douses a complaining spirit that rises from annoying differences and interpersonal irritations. Joel said, if you look at someone and you feel a criticism coming on, you need this verse. Sometimes we just get on each other's nerves, don't we? I mean, we don't tell the person that. We tell everybody else that, but we don't tell them that. Criticism is, is the sin that, that, that follows. And this grace of, of tolerance is particularly needed for, for the people who are highly skilled among us or, or you might be experienced in, in, a, in, in, a, in a certain way. When a person who's... When a person's very proficient and they run into somebody who's not, Christian tolerance is, is the lubricant that, that's needed to keep the engine from, from overheating. It's like axle grease. Helps the gears of differences run, run, run smoothly. Highly gifted people often become highly critical of others. And that comes from a lack of humility and, and grace or not applying tolerance here. I mean, you don't expect everyone to be like you, do you? Is it possible that God gifted you and gifted other people in, in, in different ways? And so rather than complain about that, maybe you, you should rejoice in God's wisdom and making, making you different and making someone else different. So, so you'll fit together and be, be useful. You might do it better, faster, closer to the truth, but Paul is saying excellence does not give you the right to excoriate others. The same with... With, with spiritual gifts. You could apply this in the area of, of spiritual gifts, serving with one another in the church. Everyone here is gifted in specific in, in certain ways, which, which means other people are not. And so when you begin to exercise your gifts, uh, what is natural to you is unnatural to, to everyone else, or I should say supernatural to, to you. In, in fact, the Bible says it's the way that God, God designed it. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were, were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body as, as he desired. And he goes on to draw a conclusion. He says, so the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And again, the, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which, which seem to be weaker, are, are necessary. And that, that, that sense of criticism that rises in our hearts is really, I have no need of you. You want to dismiss that person. And, and Christian tolerance says you can't do that. It's very easy to forget that. And when you do, you can become critical. And Christian tolerance is, is the baby powder or the gold bond that keeps spiritual feet cool and, and dry. Besides, whatever gifts you have, you, you receive... By grace, whatever you have is from the Lord, whatever, even, even natural ability that, that you have. 
And finally, it, it surely needed Christian forbearance or Christian tolerance is, is surely needed in this last area of theological observation, certain ones. Now, as I already said, we're not talking about matters of the gospel or things that send people to hell. Those are not targets for tolerance. Things like eschatology, the timing of the rapture, whether you think remarriage is permitted or, or not after a biblical divorce, or if there is even such thing as a biblical divorce. Mode of baptism, methodology, like, like style of preaching, or anything else. Yeah, church music. All of these can move into to error, and that's more serious. We certainly have clear positions on everything that I just mentioned this morning. So again, I'm not trying to communicate that, that when the rapture happens doesn't matter or mode of baptism doesn't, doesn't matter. These things do matter. I mean, we're a Baptist church, which declares our position on that. But none of those things fall into the area of heresy or none of those things call in, fall into the area of, of separation. Meaning that, that if you believe them, then, then, then you'll be damned. Some of those issues and, 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 others, and others like them require Christian tolerance. I always think of George Whitfield as an illustration of this principle. You probably came to my mind because I was just talking to him, uh, talking about him last week to someone. Yeah, that would be that would be a problem, wouldn't it? When faced with the, the threat of division in the church due to John Wesley, George Whitfield and John Wesley actually started ministry together. They were on the same page theologically before John Wesley um, went south. Um, but they, they never allowed their differences, at least Whitfield, never allowed his differences with, with Wesley to, to rise to, to some type of personal acrimony. He never allowed it to get in the way of the gospel work e either. I mean, when John Wesley changed his theology and decided to preach a message against Whitfield, Whitfield knew it would divide thousands of believers in, 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 in England, and he begged him not to do it. And when Wesley did it anyway, and a schism formed between, between their followers, Whitfield did everything he could to try to hold it, hold it together. After a significant attempt to overcome the differences... Was, was, was dashed, Whitfield recognized there was little possibility of uniting, so he gave his position over to, to Wesley, paving the way for Wesley's triumph. Several tried to convince him to, to stay on, saying, you'll lose your fame, you'll, you'll lose your, your voice, I mean, God's raised you up, and, and you'll be forgotten in the future, by the generations to come. And Whitfield's reply was as follows, follows. Let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. What is Calvin or Luther? Let Jesus be our all and all. As long as he is preached, I care not who is uppermost. I know my place even to be the servant of all. I am content to wait until the judgment day for the clearing up of my reputation. After this, after I am dead, I desire no other epitaph than this. Here lies George Whitfield. What sort of man he was, the great day will discover. And that's a spirit of Christian forbearance. And that's a serious theological issue. The sovereignty of God and, and human will. 
not only are we to forbear and to be tolerant, we're, we're also to be gracious to each other whenever we, whenever we sin. We can go to verse 13. There's another word there. Bearing with one another, showing Christian tolerance to one another, and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgive you, so also should you. The word is, is forgiveness. I would guess all of your translations. But it literally is to show grace to each other. Charizomai. Uh, Paul uses a, an odd word for, for forgiveness. It's not the word that's normally translated forgiveness. It describes an act of grace or an act of charity toward, toward other people. Specifically, when, when someone does you wrong or, or sins against you, which is why it's translated for forgiveness here. It's because of the context. And you're never, you, you'll never extend more grace towards someone than, than, than when they've wronged you. And as a believer, you, you, have to, you have to forgive them. And you might hear the, the word tolerance and, and showing grace, and you say, what's the difference between the two? And the answer is, again, related to this event that... that, that one calls for, for this one, and this other act calls for, calls for the other one. The first word about tolerance has to do with preferences and irritations. This word, word has to do with, with, with sins, hurts. You don't tolerate someone else's sin, you forgive it. You respond in grace to it. You show grace toward it, which is, which is why it's translated forgiveness. As I said, you never extend more grace towards someone than, than when, you, when you forgive them. C.S. Lewis once said, forgiveness is a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. And then it changes, right? It's kind of like justice. Everybody wants justice, just not for themselves. Everybody wants forgiveness, but, but, but we find it hard to give it at times, especially when we are offended. But the proper Christian response to, to injury, even continual injury, from another believer is, is gracious forgiveness. And again, Paul is aiming his arrows at us in the body of Christ, specifically within Timberlake Baptist Church. Of course, it applies outside. But, but this is the target. We're to show grace to those who, who wrong us in, in the church. And, and the ground for this response could, could hardly be understated. Look at verse 13 again. Look at the end of it. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. I mean, it's the, the sentence structure that indicates this will surely happen. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, surely it's going to happen. You're going to have a complaint. And so Paul tells us what to do. People will sin against you. And they'll do it more than once. And Paul reminds us that we have some experience in the whole forgiveness of sin business because the Lord has forgiven our sin. And we haven't sinned against Him just once, have we? And so the motivation for us showing grace toward others is that the Lord has forgiven you. If anyone has complaint, literally blame, cause for grievance, when that happens, church members are to extend grace casting their eyes at the cross. There are no tricks or twists here, no magic formulas, no do these five things and it'll make it easier. It's just a straightforward command to be forgiving, holding up Christ and His forgiveness of us as, as the reason to do it. 
And Christians walk around ready to repent and, and willing to forgive. The, the, these words are in the present tense too, meaning something that we continually do because it, it, it often happens. I mean, be gracious as the Lord has showed grace to you. you. You have been shown prior and superior abundant grace, so you are to extend grace. And the Bible gives explicit instructions to us on dealing with, with sin, the sin of others. I think it's almost like suffering. We, we know the Bible tells us that we will suffer as Christians, but you kind of think just not today or... Or, or just not in, you know, in, in a really hard way. Or if I, if I do the right things all the time, then maybe suffering won't come. It's just, it's just the opposite. Because you're a believer and because you live outside of the garden, suffering will, will come. We kind of think the same thing about, about fences and harms in the church. As if, if, I'll, if I am in a really good church, maybe if I'm not in this church, I'm in that church, maybe if I'll... If I really serve and I'm the, the best Christian that I can be, that, then I won't be, be offended in the church. And, and that's, that's not reality. And so when somebody sins against you, you have two options. You have the option of letting love covering a, cover a multitude of sins. And in that, you, you throw a wet blanket of love over the offense. Or you're to go and show the person their, their fault. The first one, uh, letting love cover a multitude of sins, is like pre-treating for weeds. It's like putting down one of those, uh, um, those things that you put in your weed beds. The other is, is like pulling the weeds. Smothering love is personal in your heart. And Matthew 18 is the transactional parts where you go and, and you, you lay out your case. Look at the first one here in 1 Peter 4. How do we deal with, with sin? Well, ultimately, we're to forgive them, but how do we get from, from the offense to, to forgiveness? This is what we're to do. Look at First Peter. It says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of, of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of, of, of sins. Here's the landscaping blanket that, that you put down. The, the, the soil for this, for this passage is, is planted in Christ's return. Look at how Peter starts this. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment. The world says, you, you, you live for today because you don't know whether tomorrow is going to come. The Bible says, the end of all things is, is near. Therefore, be sober-minded. Peter front-loads this with with the truth that eternity matters most of all. When the end is near, when, when we'll all stand before the Lord. Think, think of why he's saying this before he gets down to letting love cover a multitude of, of sins. The end is near when we'll all stand before the Lord. I mean, can you imagine how many offenses would never get out of the garage if we asked, will this really matter when I stand before Jesus Christ with this other person? Who's a believer, right? They're going to be there with you. Is this really going to matter up there? And it's one of the ways you throw a blanket of, of love of, over the offense. doesn't mean the offense doesn't come. It comes, and as it rises, then you let love cover a, a, a multitude. And, and so before you take your sin for a drive, screaming down the interstate to payback junction, evaluate it in light of the end is near. 
And that'll make you sound in judgment and sober in spirit as, as we pray. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and, and sober spirit for the, for the purpose of prayer. I have to pray about it. But what will help you beyond that is, is keeping a warm heart toward the Lord and, and toward, toward others. So look at what else it says. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. You know what that says? It says one of the reasons that offenses hurt worse at times than others is because we don't have a fervent love. We don't have love already generating in, in our hearts. And so when the offense comes, it, it hits, in, hits on loveless soil. And he just says not just love, but fervent love, active love toward, toward one another. One of the men who, who discipled me early in my Christian walk, when he came to a, to a new church, that's how I met him, he became pastor of a new church, and I worked with somebody that, that was there, that church, and we, we were introduced. When he came to the church, he wanted to encourage the, the, the congregation toward evangelism, and so he started a Tuesday night visitation program. In the old days, people still answered their doors, didn't pull guns on you or look at you through their ring cameras. You, you did cold door knocking, cold evangelism. And he said that the first night, half of the church showed up. New pastor, new program. He said and after a month, it was only him and the deacons. And finally, after a while, he was the only one showed up on Tuesday night. And he was telling me this story. And, and so I asked him, I mean, are you having a lot of success? Not that results are the end, end, end of all things, but... But he seems adamant to keep doing this. So I was trying to figure out, figure out why. And then he said, no, not, not necessarily. I said, well, then why do, you, why, why do you still do it if nobody else shows up? And the purpose was to get the church fired up about, about evangelism. I've never forgotten his answer. He said, Brian, I, I go to keep my heart warm toward lost people. Because if I stop witnessing... It's easy for me to forget that they need the Lord. And so even if that person doesn't even give me 30 seconds walking to their door or in our day and age talking to them at work or wherever it is, puts you in contact with someone and reminds you of their, of their need and it stirs up things in, in your heart. And Peter said, keep fervent love. Keep fervent in love toward one another in the church because love covers a multitude of, of sins. Keep fervent in, in love for one another. Why? Because you need the love. Because the love covers a, a multitude of, of sins. How many times does this verse imply that you'll be sinned against by other church members? How many sins? A multitude of sins. And yet the one thing that will ex extinguish all of them is the love of the Lord keeping your heart warm. That, that's exactly why Paul will actually end this list in, in verse 14, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And so the picture that pe uh, Peter gives here is when the offense begins to rise from sin against us, love rises up first and meets it. 
and then throws a wet blanket over it and smothers it or chokes it out before it, it can take root. And sadly, some Christians don't even have a moist blanket in, in their heart. Um, worse, some, some are more like an oily rag with gasoline on it, ready to ignite at the first spark of, of, of wrong. Peter's point is, whatever is already in your heart when the sin happens has a lot to do with how you respond to it. But, but sometimes, sometimes it, it's not something that love can just cover. You can't just forgive them personally in your heart. Um, sometimes the sin is so grievous that it must be dealt with face to face. And in that case, we're, we're instructed to go to the person, which is the other verse you probably know really well. Matthew 18. It says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you, you have won your brother. I'm, so I'm sure you know that verse, part of the church discipline passage. But, but it begins with a, with a discussion about personal and private sin. When someone commits sin against you and love from your heart cannot cover it or it's not appropriate to do so, then love is expressed, this love in confrontation must be expressed where you outline your case against them, the sin, which is what showing them their, their fault means. This is not someone looked at you sideways or didn't look at all. I mean, that's pettiness that you need to repent of. But maybe by going to the person and saying, I have a weakness in, in, in this area. You didn't sin against me, but I have, this, I have this, this heartburn and I need your help. What Paul's talking about, or uh, Jesus is talking about here, in, is a biblical case of sin. You lay it out according to Scripture how they've wronged you according to God. And the passage says, if they hear you, meaning that they agree and request forgiveness, then, then you're reconciled. You've gained a brother, meaning they confess the wrong, you grant forgiveness, and, and reconciliation happens. And Matthew 5 says, if you're the sinning party, if you're the person who sinned, then, then, then you're to go uh, to the person. So, so the two meet each other on the way. I know that's way too small for you, so just let me read it to you. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say unto you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the, the last cent. Either way, we're commanded by God to forgive, either in covering it ourselves and our hearts or granting it whenever it's, it's sought, and that's, that's showing grace to someone. The same kind of grace, Paul says, was extended to you by, by Christ. I mean, forgiveness means that you, you let someone off the hook for a debt that they owe you. It's a legitimate debt. It, 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 it's, it's what is rightfully owed for, for, for a, right, a legitimate wrong, which is why you lay out the case, which is why this is not just petty stuff. Like there's a, there's a legitimate wrong according to Scripture that has been done to you, and because of that, there's something that's owed and you, you forego the repayment uh, of that. Someone incurs a debt, and forgiveness means that you openly handedly, open-handedly re release the, the debt. And, and if the debt is forgiven, then the person can't be held liable for it, for it again, which is exactly what God did 
for you and for me in, in Christ. Is that what someone deserves whenever they do wrong? Of course it's not. That's why Paul used the word grace. It's unmerited. Anger, wrath, and malice are worse is what you rightfully could repay them in response to the wrong against you. But forgiveness is a choice not to repay someone the justice that, that's due them. And that's why Christ is the, the model held out to us. This verse says the standard for which we should forgive others is how Christ has, has forgiven us. Now, now rifle back through your, your sin against God. Lying against Him, lust, hatred, wanting nothing to do with Him, whatever your, whatever your list is. And then there are things that you don't even know you've done. Motives of the heart that God will reveal on, on one day. Now, has anyone done all of those things to you? And you say, well, yes. As a matter of fact, I think they have. Well, Paul would say even if they have, it's no comparison to our sin against God because we're one sinner sinning against another sinner. And yet God, the infinite God, freely forgave you. And so we are to do the same toward one another, especially in the, in the body of Christ. And if you don't, it can eat you alive. It will absolutely eat you alive. So if you don't apply tolerance, um, you're going to be a bald chicken in the church. If you don't apply this forgiveness, you're, you're going to be a shell of a human being. You're going to be full of bitterness, and you're going to have a miserable life. We're not far from where... The Civil War ended in, in, in Appomattox. And in a book that Charles Flood wrote about Robert E. Lee, his last years, after the Civil War, he visited a, a lady in Kentucky who took him to the remains of a, of a grand old tree in, in front of her house. And there she bitterly cried that its limbs and trunk had been destroyed by Union artillery fire. And she looked at Lee for, for a word of condemnation of the, of the North, at least sympathizing for her loss. And yet he stood there silently, and after a brief, brief silence, Lee said, Cut it down, my dear madam, and forget about it. It is better to forgive the injustices of the past than to allow them to remain and let bitterness take root and poison the rest of our lives. And the root of bitterness over past sins, legitimate sins, horrible things that have been done to you can steal future years of ministry that, that you have. It's not that God doesn't care about what happened. But what God is saying is I care even more about is your usefulness and your happiness and your joy and your service to me in the church in the future. So Paul says, don't fall for, for either one of those. Show tolerance toward partialities and extend grace toward offenses. And then trust that your Father, who is good and does good, knows exactly what you need. And He's not asleep. And He is capable of dealing with, with others, just like us. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for Colossians. 
such a helpful reminder to my own soul how easy it is to think we have all of our theological ducks in a row and we're a biblical church and we're this and, and we're that and all those things are true and I'm so thankful for them and yet you shine the light in places that things still remain we, 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 would, we would not want to be there Lord so we are flesh and blood you tell us that you, you know our frame is but dust so help us to apply the grace that you've given us through your spirit to be tolerant, forbearing and forgiving show grace toward others we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.